Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. to verse 20 there for us. So 1 Samuel, uh, in your Bibles, we might change to come and read for us. Good morning. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 through 20. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, And remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman, woman, excuse me, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Thank you very much, James. Appreciate him taking all those difficult names and places as well for me. So I uh, uh, just appreciate uh, doing that and reading for us. And we remember that uh, though the grass withers and though the flowers fade, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's ask his help now as we come to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. And Lord, we just marvel at uh, your ways, Lord, that you are... God on high, Lord over all, and yet your ways are often so mysterious to us, God, that you delight to use the um, unexpected and the ordinary, maybe even the, the downcast and the despairing, and, and Lord, through them to show your strength and wisdom and your mercy and grace. And Lord, that you have, even through the humble prayers of uh, a countrywoman from the whole country of Ephraim, Lord, that you have turned Uh, entire nations. And so I pray that you would help us to grow in our our view of who you are this morning, to know the comfort and the the blessing of being among your covenant people, and that you are a a covenant-keeping God, bringing light into the darkness, sustaining us day by day. And Lord, I pray that we might learn uh, from this account uh, in 1 Samuel, and Lord, of this uh, woman of faith and your mercy towards her. And God, I pray that you would Guide me in my words. I pray that uh, as I proclaim your word, that it would be uh, in the demonstration of your spirit's power, not in my own strength or ingenuity, but Lord, that you might minister to your people uh, through your word, that Christ would stand forth to your people and that we would be encouraged and uh, built up in the faith. And we do continue to just pray for for wisdom in these uncertain times and those who are uh, Lord, unable to be here, either due to illness or, Lord, just the, the, the threat of fires and uh, danger around, we, we pray a special strength and mercy towards them. And pray you guide us now in this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So the title this morning is uh, A Desperate Plea in Barren Times. And I... Uh, I've been struggling a bit. It's always a little, uh, well, somewhat difficult when you finish off a, a book that we've been working through for a long time. We finished off the book of James last week after um, working through that almost over eight months. And so there's always this big question mark for me is where are we going to go next? What are we going to do? Um, what, what do we start? Uh, and I, I've been thinking about uh, Samuel specifically since we had gone through in our Wednesday study, the, the study on Judges. 
And, um, and so Samuel has been on my mind. And then as we also consider this morning uh, being Mother's Day, and, uh, and in light of that, I've been thinking about Hannah and uh, also just her demonstration of faith. So it just seemed a, a good time to start a bit of a study in 1 Samuel. Not that we will go through Samuel in a verse-by-verse manner as we would a letter from Paul or from Peter, uh, but a narrative is uh, taking little larger chunks, picking up some of the, the themes and uh, truths that we find in this letter, um, this historical account. And it's named Samuel for obvious reasons that uh, it, it, it tells the story of this boy who was given to Hannah devoted to the Lord and would become a a great prophet of God, also functioning in a priestly manner. And it's interesting in Deuteronomy 18.15, I won't read that for you now, but in Deuteronomy 18.15, there's actually a prophecy of a Moses-like prophet who would come and would would minister to the people, would would stand and faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord. And, And there's a sense in which those ultimately point us to Christ, the the great prophet, priest, and king. But I believe also there's a sense in which God is fulfilling that word in the bringing of Samuel, who very much parallels a Moses-like figure in a desperate time in the history of Israel. And this is, as I said, a a narrative account of God's working uh, over 3,000 years ago in Israel and uh, in these ancient lands and ancient times. It is a a theological book. We see themes of God's sovereignty. We see the the truths that were established in the first portion of the scriptures affirmed in Samuel's writings. We see a call for for, uh, complete obedience to God from the heart, not just an external form of religion. We have, for example, uh, verses like 1 Samuel 7.3 says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you. Or later in uh, 1 Samuel 12, 20, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. And so it's a call for God's people to return to the Lord. And uh, the dating is roughly around 1050 BC. So as I said, that's over 3,000 years ago that we find this account taking place. And uh, even the authorship is a little uncertain. Um, You know, I personally would lean towards Samuel himself that we have in in 1 Chronicles 29.29. Uh, a reference to Samuel as one who was writing chronicles, among others. Um, Possibly even Nathan contributed, uh, possibly Eli some. So it may be even a a combined authorship in 1st and 2nd Samuel. But no doubt it has been considered part of the canon of Scripture, part of God's inspired, inerrant word to us. And so we can trust it is given for our profit and in in our, our building up in the faith. It's hard to really get our mind around 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years prior to Christ. Our own country is only 156 years old. And so it's, it's hard for us to, to really think about a, a culture and a place that is so long ago. And I suppose in our day and time when 
when, when, when always we, we assume that newer is better, you know, we always want the latest iPhone, the latest model of vehicle, the, the, the latest update for the, our computer, whatever it is. And so to think that we would consider something 3,000 years old uh, may seem very strange in our culture. And yet we trust, as I said, this is the word of God. And this letter, or this account rather, um, it, it, it comes after Ruth in our Bibles, but really the story picks up from where Judges left off. Um, the book of Judges, if you remember, is essentially an account of Israel's downward spiral into idolatry, into immorality, uh, into godlessness. Even the, the priesthood was seen as engaging in, in, in wicked and grotesque forms of sexual immorality uh, as the book of Judges comes to a close. And uh, the final judge that was given in, in uh, Judges was Samson, whose story somewhat parallels Samuel, as we will see. He was born of, of a parents who could not have children. He also was given the vow of the Nazarite who, uh, that he would not shave his head, which we, of course, uh, only lasted until he met Delilah, who cut off his hair as he gave away the secret of his strength. And uh, he, he was taken, and, and, um, and in the end, he was... Um, I, would, I would think uh, restored to God and pray that God would give him one last uh, form of strength to, to take out a, the, the pillars in which he was chained. And God brought a triumph over the Philistines. And yet the letter, the, the, the account of Judges ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's the backdrop of Samuel. This dark, godless time in Israel's history when everyone's doing what is right. They had rejected God as their king and, and there is immorality among the priesthood. The people look a lot more like the cultures around them, the pagan nations, as they embrace their gods, they embrace their vile practices and immorality. And so this story comes right in the midst of such a dark and hopeless looking time. And so this morning, we're going to see, as we work through this section, first of all, the family portrait that is given. And we're going to see uh, also Hannah's, um, Hannah's struggle, Hannah's uh, trouble in, in, in this situation specifically. And then we're going to look at Hannah's prayer. And finally, Hannah's gift. And so let's just look this morning for a few moments uh, in this section that James read for us. Starting off with the family portrait that we have, we're told of this man, Elkanah, and that he comes from the hill country of Ephraim. Now, we're only given four generations back for, I mean, in our time, it's impressive if you know four generations in your family. Uh, in this time, that would be considered fairly short. And so it's a little difficult to know exactly who this man was and uh, exactly um, his story, his lineage. But there is an um, interesting section in, first, again, First Chronicles 6, 22. Um, and uh, maybe we'll just um, turn there quickly, just because I want to show you this. I think it's important as we um, continue on. So keep going to the right, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles 6, 22. To our surprise, these genealogies actually can be quite helpful and quite useless. Useful, so. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so we have uh, 22, the sons of Kohath. Now, if you've been working on your Bible reading plan, you'll, you'll remember perhaps that we just looked at the sons of Kohath among the tribe of Levi uh, and some of the responsibilities they were given. So we have this reference, the sons of Kohath, Abimadad, his son, Korah, his son, Asher, his son, Elkanah, his son, and it goes on to continue, uh, Abyssasath, his son, Asher, his son, and, and goes on through this lineage. Now, if this is speaking of the same Elkanah, which many would believe it is, this does put Elkanah in among the sons of Kohath, which means he was of Levitical descent. And I think this becomes important because Samuel functions not only as a prophet, but in a priestly manner. And in order for him to, to serve in the temple, um, as Eli will have him, he would by law need to be of the tribe of Levi. Um, and so I think his, his designation, uh, as we look at this family portrait of an Ephrathite, uh, may be more in reference to from the, the place in which he is from, from Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim, which was not uncommon for Levites to, to live in that area. And so it, it's, again, one of these debated points as we consider this family. But as far as I can tell, Elkanah is among the descendants of Levi, and uh, he has two wives. So immediately we see this is a bit of an odd family portrait. You can imagine going into someone's house and, and looking at, you know, usually there's a picture of the family somewhere. They send you the card at Christmas time. And uh, here's Elkanah, not only with one wife, but two wives, and that to us is a very odd family portrait. But of course, we know in that particular time, uh, it was not all that uncommon. And I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time on the issue of polygamy. But uh, on, on Wednesday, we have just been working through the creation account, uh, God's initial design in making man and woman. Clearly, this is not consistent with God's original design for marriage. He made one man and one woman, and God's initial design and intent prior to sin entering the scene was that marriage would be between one man and one woman in covenant for life. And whenever we find these, these polygamous marriages in the scripture, it, it always brings about heartache and pain and difficulty. Yes, God works through those family lines according to his promises, but we, ought, we don't need to think that this is somehow uh, the norm or something that we ought to pursue. Uh, I think we would agree that you have to be a little crazy to, to try and to take on two wives. And we see in this family portrait some of the struggles that immediately came as a result. Um, as we get closer to Christ and the revelation of God becomes clearer and clearer. And as the apostles expound the word of God in the full um, light of his revelation, clearly this is condemned in the new scripture, uh, in the New Testament rather. And, and so I don't take this as a being something God is uh, affirming as good, but I would see it as Jesus described divorce in Mark 10, 4 to 6. Remember the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, why did like Moses gave a certificate of divorce in the old covenant? And so one might conclude that God is giving his blessing upon divorce. Jesus clarifies it and says it's, it's because of your hardness of heart that God gave the certificate of divorce. And he may say, why is it that, that these men whom God and women whom God uses engage in these, uh, I would say, sinful marriages um, it's because of the hardness of heart. It's because of the effects of sin. God has, for a season, allowed this, uh, has passed over it, even as 
Paul said in Romans 3.23 that he passed over former sins that would be atoned for in Christ. And Paul preached in Acts 17.30. There were times of ignorance, and yet now God calls all to repent. And so I would see this whole issue of polygamy in light of that. Um, like divorce, God allowed it for a season because of the hardness of man's heart. And now, as we have the fuller revelation of, in Christ, that we see that was inconsistent with God's original design. So we meet Elkanah, uh, as far as I can tell, connected to the sons of Kohath, of, of the tribe of Levi, and he has two wives. Now we're told the name of his two wives, uh, that one is Hannah, which means uh, gracious woman. And so all, even in her name, there's an indication here that this is a woman who fears the Lord, who is, is full of the grace of God. And the other wife, we're told, is, is Penina. Um, not totally sure what her name means. Uh, some may be connected to the idea of a pearl. Uh, so I don't know if that means that maybe she's the, the high-maintenance wife or what that means. She's, I don't know, pearl jewelry. I was thinking maybe not, not really anything there to, uh, to build a case on. But uh, he has two wives. And we're told Hannah has no children while Penina has children, sons and daughters. And this establishes immediately in the story tension. Um, There would have been a bit of a a gasp at this point, especially for the Jewish audience in reading this account. And and the the, the entire uh, account is set up in a a beautiful, masterful literary structure. The the way that they're writing and, and recording these events is very intentional. So as they see, okay, here's a man who, who, who fears the Lord. I mean, he's going to worship. He's doing what the law requires of him. He has two wives, one who is barren, one who has children. So there's, there's a sense of gas, but not just because they would feel sympathy for Hannah, as we might say, oh, poor Hannah, she, she wants children, and yet she can't have them, and that would be so very difficult, and maybe you sympathize even with her. There are times where maybe you want to have children and, and for whatever reason are not able to. And, and there's a tremendous burden and, 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 and turmoil in the heart. But it's, it's not only that they would have felt sympathy for Hannah, but in light of the Old Testament, this creates an element of expectation. Because if you know your Old Testament, you know that over and over again, God uses barren women to accomplish gracious and miraculous purposes. It is a theme right throughout Scripture. You can follow the line of of barren women right to Christ. And Abraham and Sarah, we know, were unable to conceive. Now, in their case, we were told they're beyond the years of childbearing. So there was a more of a supernatural element, I would say, as they um, conceived, still using the, the ordinary means of, of a husband and wife. Um, but beyond the years of childbearing, Isaac and Rebecca, similar. Jacob and Rachel, unable to initially conceive children. And yet in time, the Lord gives Rachel Joseph and Benjamin. And through Joseph, the, the, the world would be delivered from famine. Uh, and so th- there's this theme that is developed already to this point in Scripture. And as I said, even the, the last judge, Samson, was born in a similar manner to Manoah and his wife, who were unable to conceive. So, so this information begins to build a sense of anticipation that God is about to do something, that God is, is going to work through this situation. And for us, I think there's also an application there. We, 
We want to assume that hardship, that difficulty, that, that unmet expectations equal bad. Always. And that's often how we look at it. But if we truly believe that God works all things for good according to his own good pleasure for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, then it means unmet expectations, hardship and difficulty always equal good. And that's very difficult for us to truly believe, to actually to really have a sense of that in your heart, even though you, you despise the pain and the uncomfortableness of it, the, the, the misery of it. There, there's nothing in that, that wants to delight in that. But trusting that God can use even these difficult circumstances for good, for his glory, for the, the changing of nations brings a sense of confidence to us. God is in all things making us fit for heaven, bringing glory to his name, storing up treasures for us where moth and rust and forest fires can't destroy. God is leveraging everything in your life for his glory if you belong to him. And that is a a primary theme here in the account of Samuel. So we see this family portrait, the two wives, Elkanah, and it is important to note they are, as I mentioned, also a God-fearing family. They, they faithfully go to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the Tent of Meeting is located, and they, they faithfully bring their sacrifices year after year, as prescribed in the law, to God. This is a God-fearing family, and the Lord is preparing through them, a deliverer for Israel. <clears throat> we're also, <clears throat> excuse me, we're also introduced to. <clears throat> we're also introduced to some <clears throat> new characters uh, in the account: Eli, Hophni, and Phineas, which will become very important. <clears throat> Eli is probably beyond the years of of priesthood. He's in a form of retirement, though still there involved. So Hophni and Phinehas are technically the priests that are serving there. And so let us then consider Hannah's affliction. We have the family portrait before us, understanding a little bit of who these people are, where they've come from. Uh, Very ordinary people, country people from the, the hills of Ephraim, we're told. Um, nothing overly impressive about them. And then we get this insight into Hannah's affliction. So they come year after year, bringing their offering to God. As is the custom, they they would also receive from the offering a portion of meat to to eat. Uh, and, And so we begin to see part of Hannah's affliction in this event. Elkanah gives some portions to his wife Penina and uh, his, uh, her children, and uh, to Hannah, we're told, he gives a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So again, we almost have this Jacob and Leah and Rachel type of situation, uh, and some even speculate that, that um, perhaps Alkanah married a second wife because uh, it became evident that Hannah could not have children. And that was a huge problem for them in that time. They, they wanted to carry on the family name. We don't know for sure his motivation in taking a second wife. But just as uh, Jacob loved Rachel, though she could not have children, so here we have 
the similar dynamic. And he gives extra portion to Hannah as a display of his love for her. So naturally, naturally in response to this, this creates a lot of misery and heartache for Hannah. That Penina, she begins to... uh, to tease and to malign Hannah. And we see this even in our own homes, don't we? I mean, if, if I'm giving out some ice cream to my children, it's, get, it's sometimes to the point where you, you have to get out the, the caliper and, and measure the height of the ice cream cone to make sure that every child has the same portion. Or else there's this immediate outrage at the unfairness of the situation. And my brother got to choose before me. And his is a little bit bigger. And I want another scoop. And why does he get more than me? Uh, and by God's grace, we're working on, on that attitude. And I suppose I, I sometimes am also measuring the various options and going for the, the larger one. But we know that even these simple acts uh, can create all kinds of tension. And so... As Penina is, is seeing this and aware of, of Alcana's love for Hannah, no doubt that would make her understandably furious. And so she turns her, her frustration and anger onto Hannah. And we're told this happens for years as they come to this sacrifice. She is afflicting Hannah. Um, we're told her rival would provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And she knows how to get under Hannah's skin. She would know what would, what would most deeply hurt her. And that's one of the things when we know people well, we have great ability and potential to build them up and encourage them, knowing their particular struggles and weaknesses. But there's also this ability to, to wound them deeply because we know where their struggles lie. And so she comes at Hannah over this issue, it would seem, of not bearing children. And this is just crushing Hannah. But we also have an incredible insight as to why Hannah is barren. We're told that it is is because the Lord has closed her womb. The Lord has prevented her from having children. And I know this alone could be an entire sermon, but... Again, we we must not see our affliction and our trials as something disconnected from God, as though God is hands off with all of our troubles and he only brings about the comfortable and the easy things in our life. We see here that God is sovereign over her barrenness in her inability to have children. And that is what's grieving her heart most of all. We emotionally might like the idea of a God who is just a really nice guy and never leads us through troubled seas, never brings circumstances into our life that cause pain, but that's not the God of the Scripture. He does not tempt us to sin, even as we were reminded with the children that it is as our own desires are enticed and led astray that we are given over to sin. So God is not in the business of tempting His children, but certainly bringing difficult troubling circumstances into their life that may shake us to the core at times and drive us from our self-reliance and cause us to flee to God to throw ourselves upon Him. And the scriptures are very clear that God is sovereign even over conception in childbirth. Psalms 127.3 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. 
God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 44, 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns back wise men and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. God says, I am the creator. I am the author. I am the giver of life. And so this means that God is sovereign over the the children that we are given and also the children that we may want and long for and yet are not given. And so we can just imagine Hannah's heartache and pain. And in this one particular visit to Shiloh as they bring the, the offering, we're told that she is driven to the very edge of despair. She is not eating. She has no appetite for food, even though she has this double portion from her husband. She has the love of her husband, and yet her heart is so broken and so burdened that she is not eating, and she is weeping. And there's nothing more difficult at the dinner table than when mom is weeping. It, it just, it just Nothing really seems to be able to, to go forward. And, and, and we see even in Elkanah, I would say uh, rather stereotypically, attempts to, to resolve the situation in a very, uh, I would say, well, in our worst uh, states as men perhaps in this sort of way. He, he turns to Hannah, who is at the very edge of despair, and says, Hannah, look, What's your problem? Why aren't you eating? Why are you crying? Like, aren't I more than, than ten sons to you, Hannah? You know, it's just the most unhelpful statement from this man. And I, I think as husbands, we may relate at times when we, we know that we've put our foot in our mouth. We're, we're trying to fix it. We're trying to help the situation to encourage our wife. And yet what we end up doing is in our own wisdom and our own strength, our own thinking... We actually just make the matter all the worse. I think this would be something like, uh, something like telling someone who has lost a child that, well, at least you have two more children. It's not a helpful statement. It's not, it's not considering the pain that they're in to, to say those sort of things. And so for Alcana to be like, Hannah, like, like, get over it. Like, am I not more than ten sons to you, Hannah? It is not really a helpful response to this troubled woman. But like I say, if I'm going to point a finger at Alcana, I know that I, I have three uh, pointing back, and, and, and many times we do fail to, to lead our wives in a truly helpful manner, to truly listen and, and understand their pain, and, and, and not just you know, try to find the, the right tool to, to fix the job. In our time, you know, you probably go on YouTube and, and, and search a video to how to comfort troubled wife. And we, we want to look for answers. We want to find a solution to fix this. But ideally, Alcana would have acknowledged her pain and led her to the throne of grace. Admitted that this was deeply disturbing to Hannah and deeply troubling and that he himself was not the solution, but that he could take her to God, to the God of heaven, to the Lord of hosts. And I pray as men, we do understand that that leadership in the home is not always having the solution or the right tool for the, for the job. 
Obviously, there's a time to fix things. There's a time to, to, to try and problem solve. You know, this past, uh, well, it feels like several months, I've been battling appliances in our house, and it's starting to, to drive me a little crazy. If one more appliance breaks, it's like, I just think we're going to get out the, uh, well, it's easy for me to say we'll get out the washboard, but, uh, you know, trying to keep all these things working. And there's, a, there's a, a way in which a man needs to take responsibility for his home and oversee that things are working well and, and try to, if you can't fix it, then find someone who's going to, to help you. That's part of, of, I think, being leaders in the home. But there is also a time when we need to close our mouths. We need to stop our problem solving. And we need to get on our knees before God with our wife and plead to God to help, to intervene, to lift up our wife to the throne of grace, admitting, I don't have the solution. I don't have the answers. Let's go to the Father who is merciful. And we need to lead in this way. So Hannah doesn't really get help from Elkanah here. I don't think her, his comment about the ten sons is, is really going to, to ease her trouble. But what does she do in her despair? She drowned it in binge-watching Netflix, eating. Does she bury herself in a career? Does she abandon her faith and walk away from God and, and conclude that because things are difficult, because I'm suffering, obviously God doesn't care about me. I'm walking away. What does Hannah do? And we have the account of Hannah's prayer. Praise be to God that Hannah was a woman of faith. She knew where to go in her grief and her sorrow, in her desperation. She knew where to go. And we're told that she withdraws from the table and she just begins pouring out her soul, even in her own words, to God in prayer. And it's this sort of gut-wrenching prayer to God. It's not, we would say, maybe a nice uh, prayer filled with Christianese. There's nothing wrong with formal prayer, but I, I hope as Christians there are also times in your life where you have experienced gut-wrenching prayer that is ugly. And there's tears flowing and there's, there's, your nose is running and, and you're just pouring out your soul to God because you, you don't have anywhere else to turn and you trust that he hears you. There's nothing showy about this either. She's not looking to make a scene. She's not looking to attract attention to herself. In fact, we're told that she prays though the tears are, are streaming down her face and though her, her heart is breaking, that she doesn't actually speak any words. She, her mouth is moving and, and yet in her heart she is crying out to God. Are we a people who can pray like that? In the quietness even of your own home? Pleading, crying out to God, pouring out your soul, trusting that he hears you and knowing that there is no other place you can truly go. Do you flee to God when you have nowhere else? She does not shake an angry fist at God and cry, where are you? You've abandoned me. No, she casts all her cares and anxieties upon him. It's a wonderful picture of just her soul being poured out to the Lord. And Eli, looking on what's happening, concludes that she must be drunk. She, she's behaving like, a, like, a, like a, a woman who's somewhat out of her mind. Her mouth is moving. She's 
probably trembling and she's weeping and, 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 and just looks like a mess and yet there's, there's no actual words, intelligible words, maybe some, some mumbling. And he concludes, well, she must be, must be drunk. And yet he realizes, no, she's not drunk. She is a woman of, of faith. She's a godly woman who is, as she says, praying to God, a woman who is deeply troubled. And in this prayer, and we'll see um, later on also another prayer of Hannah as a, a wonderful testimony of her faith and her rich, uh, even theological understanding of who God is. This is not, this is not a, a prayer in ignorance that Hannah's praying. She has a, a very deep understanding of the, the nature and the person of who God is. But she also makes a vow to God in her prayer. And this is not necessarily seen as a careless or a a, a foolish vow as there are in the scriptures. This is a God-honoring vow. She, She prays to the Lord, if you will give me a son, then I will devote him to the Lord all of his days. And she also speaks of this vow of the Nazarite that his head will not be shaved. And then we're told that she gets up. Imagine went and washed off her face. Eli uh, realizes, okay, she's not a drunk woman. I don't have to drive her out. That, that uh, he actually then blesses her and, um, and, and says to her that, um, may the Lord grant you your request. Go in peace, he says in verse 17. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she goes away and she eats her, her dinner. And her face was no longer sad. <clears throat> Which is interesting because she's not given an answer here. She's not told that she will have her request necessarily other than the blessing of, of Eli. There, there's no angel. There's no audible voice from God even as Manoah and his wife had an encounter with the angel of the Lord and this promise of the, the son. But just this, this quiet assurance that her prayer was heard and this, this, uh, this freedom in now that I imagine she experienced in having cast her cares upon the Lord and placed on him the burdens of her heart and then an ability to rest in what God would do if he would answer or not. And I love that we are told that they the next day worship. They worship the Lord. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and then they went back to their house at Ramah. So she, she also worships God in the midst of her trial and struggle. She praises God with her family. Doesn't have a definite answer. And I think that's also a wonderful example to us. Do we worship in seasons of trial? Do we, do we continue to bring before the Lord the offering of praise? I know even now as we look around and there's communities in, in turmoil and, and many are, are even uh, you know, in various places trying to fight fires or comfort those who have lost much. And, and I think even in my own flesh, there's a sense in which, is it right to gather for church? Is it, is it right to, 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 to be here and, 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 and somewhat uh, uh, you know, disengage from maybe some of the demands that are out there? And like I said, of course, those who are trained to, to help ought to, to do so and we, we respect them for that. But... But there's this principle that we continue to worship the Lord in seasons of uncertainty and trial and difficulty. 
that we continue to, even as the psalmist would say, um, soul, why are you downcast? Like, like, rise up, soul. Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord. Worship him. We have this wonderful example here where they praise and worship the Lord. And we see Hannah's prayer and example. And then finally and lastly, Hannah's gift. We're told as they make their way home that Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And this wonderful picture of of God's answer to Hannah, that he remembered her. And there's times we may think, well, this is just biology, the the gift of a child. And there's nothing, like I say, supernatural here um, as far as the normal way in which a child is conceived. That this is between a man and a woman in, in the covenant of marriage. And they come together and a child is conceived. And somebody might say, well, yeah, that's just just lucky for Hannah, I guess. She finally got her son. But we clearly see that this is the, the answer to her prayer. This is God's intervention. This is God's gift to Hannah, the gift of a son. And there is a sense in which I think every child is a gift from God. And we have this problem of just reducing everything down to its lowest you know, scientific common denominator. And we often forget about the gift of life. And yet even as we read in Psalm 139 this morning, that, that God is the one who uses these means that he has appointed to bring forth life. He's the giver of every child, of every life. He's, if you're a mother this morning, then it is because God has given you a child or a father. It is from him, a heritage from the Lord. And Hannah names his the son Samuel, which means the God of strength and power. And so as we consider this account, just a few points of uh, application as we bring it to a close. As I mentioned, we first of all see God's sovereignty over all things and his wisdom in bringing about good even through trials and struggles. A quote that has often been attributed to Charles Spurgeon, though some say maybe he didn't initially say it, Uh, Either way, it's a really good quote. And it is that I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages. And as Christians, we have to develop this confidence in God that even our trials and our difficulties and our unmet desires and expectations are still in the realm of God's sovereignty. And if you are God's child, he is leveraging that for your good and for his glory. And that may be finally seen in, in eternity. You may not even see the fullness of that good in this life, but you still can trust it is for good. If you consider that if God had not closed Hannah's womb, had not led her through these difficult years of affliction, we would have never known her name. We would have never considered her story or her faith because she would have been like so many other women at that time, conceiving children and having families. Through this trial, God has glorified himself and given us an example in Hannah of tremendous faith. But we also see in this account, God's mercy and covenant faithfulness. 
As I said, this is a very dark time in Israel's history. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They've rejected God as king over them. The, the priesthood we will even see in Samuel is corrupt and immoral. And instead of God wiping them out, as I'm sure he would have desired to do, he uses this common, ordinary country girl from the hills of Ephraim as a means to turn an entire nation and to prepare the way for a kingship, a Davidic covenant that will lead us to Christ himself. It's an incredible account of God's covenant faithfulness, and we will see that throughout this letter. Though his people have fallen into tremendous sin, through this woman, he brings about a deliverer, a prophet, who will proclaim the Lord and call the people to repent. And I know we also live in a very dark day when everyone seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. And even you look among the professing Christian community and often it looks more like the world than the image of Christ. And there is immorality and there is false teaching and it can be very disheartening. But as we consider this account, we know that God is faithful and he will be faithful to us. He is a covenant keeping God. And so may we press on in obedience to him. And what a wonderful example here as well for a godly motherhood. And the, the way in which God may use even the home, as I said, to change the course of an entire nation. For you mothers this morning and women, even if you're not a mother, um, obviously still application and as you glorify God in the unique role in which you have, the, the way in which God has made you. You see, our culture tells you that you need to be a Deborah, who was also a judge, and she rode into battle. She was there on the front lines fighting the the, the enemies of Israel. And yet, as you consider the difference that Deborah made in the life of Israel, or the difference that Hannah made by the grace of God, who is it that actually had the greater impact on the direction and course of the nation? I would argue it was Hannah by a long shot. And she was not a warrior in battle. But through her humble dependence upon the Lord in, in laboring with the children day after day and, and, and desiring that her home be pleasing to the Lord and Hannah desiring to have children that would be a godly legacy. And it was that that God uses to, to bring forth reformation in the entire nation and even to impact the entire world through the coming uh, king in, in David. You don't have to be a Deborah. God is pleased to use the humble role of a mother in the life of her children. You can just point to so many examples of mothers who labored faithfully in their daily tasks and bringing up children and reading the scriptures to them and praying for them. You know, you could read the story of, uh, of uh, John Wesley or John Bunyan or think of... Um, uh, oh, his name just escaped me. Amazing Grace, um, John Newton. Uh, you read their stories of their mothers who were praying for them as little children. And it was later in their life, even think of, of um, John uh, Newton specifically on, a, on a, a, a slave ship, fleeing from God, 
in the depths of sin and wickedness. And there, it was even later in his life, as even the, his, his mind would recall the prayers of his mother, the teachings of his mother, and the grace of God breaks in on that man. And he comes to, face to face with the living God and cries out to him in repentance and faith. Do not underestimate what God can do through the role of a wife and mother. It's not second rate. It's not lower level service. It's a, it's a glorious means that God has used over and over again to bless entire nations. And we certainly see that here in the example of Hannah. And finally, do we not see here also a trail that leads us to Christ? As I said, God has really marked a path through barren women to Christ himself. A thousand years later, God would come to another couple who could not have children, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And he would tell Zechariah that your wife is going to bear a son, Elizabeth, and he is going to be a forerunner for the Messiah, the one to whom all the prophets are pointing. And they have John who would go as a forerunner to Christ. And then also Mary is told by an angel that though she is not married, though she is a virgin, she too will have a son. And he will be the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, mighty God, wonderful counselor. He will be the one to deliver his people from their sin, not simply functioning as one who brings a sacrifice to God, but one who is the sacrifice to God. And God is pleased to do this through the humble obedience of women down through the ages who've trusted in the promise of God and through them bring about our Redeemer. The author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 9.26, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. And we find in Christ the greater Samuel, the greater David, the one to whom all this is pointing, the prophet, priest, and king of his people, in whom we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so may we trust God. May we come to him often in prayer and may we give thanks for his covenant faithfulness and live that out day after day in our homes. Fixing our eyes upon Christ who is the author and finisher of our salvation. And I, I pray if you do not know Christ this morning that you would, would flee to him. Cast yourself as candidate upon the mercy of God. And we're told that all of those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So let us pray and we will close there this morning. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, for these incredible accounts uh, in scripture that, Lord, encourage us to, to press on. They, they remind us of your faithfulness, of your workings among your people. Though, though the people were, Lord, engaged in all kinds of immorality and Lord, evil deeds, that you are pleased to raise up faithful witnesses, remnants among lost humanity to, to bring glory to your name. And Lord, we pray that our homes would be such places. 
And Father, that even those who do not have children, that they would see their, their life and their work and their, their entire existence as a, a means to glorify you, to leverage their life, to point others to Christ, to, to make much of you. Would this be our heart's desire, we pray, God. We pray a blessing upon each home and child, that you would be merciful towards us according to your steadfast love. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.